Bocas del Toro, Panama. A secluded seaside hideaway, Scott Makeda has no idea that his tropical haven is about to become his personal hell. He literally said, I have the power of Satan. A serial killer pretending to be a therapist. Holbert rents a room and that's where he set up his business as a fake shrink. Accusations of a gringo mafia. Gun running, drugs. A slaughtered family. And then he goes back and he plants another bullet. A killer on tape. Hey man, I'm guilty. Everybody knows I'm a monster. The law of the jungle is simple. Survive. From Tree Fort Media and Village Roadshow Entertainment Group, this is Natural Selection, Scott versus Wild Bill. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Please be advised, this podcast contains graphic audio and themes that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Ladies and gentlemen, I know that there are a lot of hard feelings in this case, and there's a lot of discomfort on both sides with this settlement. Settlement is yielding the absolutes and compromising your positions, abandoning your hopes and your best case scenario, and reaching a compromise. That is the nature of a settlement. It had been nine long months since the collapse of Champlain Tower South when Circuit Judge Michael Hansman presided over a packed and emotional courtroom in downtown Miami. Everybody in this case is a victim. There is no question about that. And if the court calls people an economic class, believe me, it is not intended to diminish the harm and the suffering that any of you have suffered. I am a member of the economic loss class, but I would like the court to consider, in addition to the loss of all my property, the emotional and physical toll <coughs> these events have taken on me. Since that night, I have had difficulty falling and staying asleep. <coughs> I have awakened in the middle of the night screaming. The memories of the panic to just get out, the burning, choking feeling in my throat, the surreal abyss that confronted us when we opened our front door to face the ocean, and the feeling of water around my ankles in the garage, paralyzing me with the fear of being electrocuted, still haunt me. Because of the pandemic, this was one of the few times a hearing was held in open court and not just over Zoom. The judge, the lawyers, the survivors, and the families of the dead were all in one room together. My pain is unbearable. I am constantly suffering. My heart is shattered into a million pieces and beyond repair. There's a word for orphan and widow, but there is no word for losing a child. We cannot equate losing an apartment and furnishings to losing a life. When you invest and lose money, you move on. When you lose a child, you could never move on. Nothing will ever be right. It was March 30th, and this was the first time the survivors and the families had a chance to plead their cases about a proposed settlement that has been in the works for months. The settlement is at the center of a bitter legal battle over money 
and blame between the people who lost their loved ones and the people who escaped but lost their homes and everything in them. So here the court addressed me as part of the economic loss, makes it sound like I lost a couch or some other piece of furniture. I am a survivor. All my friends and neighbors that were fortunate to get out that night are survivors. We are surviving victims. We all mourn those friends that died that night. I need to move on with my life and buy a new home for my family. In this courtroom, neighbors forever united in grief were divided in the eyes of the law pitted against one another with millions of dollars at stake. I'm Paul Beban, and in this episode of Collapse, Disaster in Surfside, we're gonna hear from the survivors, the families, their lawyers, and the judge, as they all grappled with a case of limited funds and unlimited losses. When you kind of go back to the beginning of this litigation, I mean, it kept snowballing and snowballing, and there were so many cases being filed. Because there was so much uncertainty as to what triggered the collapse and who exactly to blame, you start blaming everybody. Jay Weaver is the Miami Herald's longtime federal courts reporter. The first lawsuit was filed the day of the collapse, and Weaver says, It didn't take long for the situation to turn into something everyone had hoped to avoid. Once you get past the engineers and the contractors and the developers and the town of Surfside and the condo association and the consultants, you start blaming your neighbor. I mean, there were certain families that were holding press conferences. This spot is sacred. It is unacceptable that the last place my son was alive to be anything but a memorial. This memorial should be a permanent reminder of what happened here, not at the park and not anywhere else, at 87-7 Collins Avenue. We do not build over dead bodies. Weaver lives close to Surfside, just like so many of the Herald's other reporters and editors. And as the case wore on for months, Weaver took walks to the scene as it went from search and rescue to demolition to empty lot. I started to step away from the courtroom and step away from the lawyers and step away from all the kind of sterile litigation. You know, I kept going back to the site, you know, on my own to look through the the chain link fence. This was kind of a symbolic burial ground. The DNA, the heirlooms, their beds, jewelry, all this stuff that had been buried there, all their cash, everything was gone. Many of the people did not receive full bodies, only remains and small remains at that. Most of their remains are right here on the site that you see behind us. That is their resting place. In Judaism, the body is sacred as well as the soul. If the bodies are there, they cannot be moved. They cannot be built upon. They were going from the grieving to the blaming, and it was just escalating for a tragedy that perhaps could never have been avoided due to some sort of engineering or construction or development flaw, but nobody knew at the time. But what they did know at the time, what they'd known from the very first court hearing, 
was that there was not enough money in this case. Is there a separate insurer for the property, for the physical structure itself? And who is that carrier? And we yes, Your Honor, there's uh, $30 million uh, of property coverage through Great American Insurance Company. Great American. Okay. Day one in the legal process was July 1st. While the massive search and rescue operation was still in full swing, while the daily family briefings we heard in earlier episodes were still underway, the standing section was demolished days later, on the 4th of July. So there were no family members or survivors at this first hearing. It was just the judge and the lawyers starting to try to figure out how much money there was going to be to go around. And is there any excess on top of that, or is that a primary policy? Uh, that's the only coverage that we're aware of at the moment. Okay, so you think there's at most $48 million of total coverage, both for the structure and liability? That's right, Bruno. Okay, very good. So we've got, as I suspected, and maybe I hope I'm proven wrong and that there's more coverage to be found, it looks like uh, for the property damage claims and the injury and death claims, there's going to be a total of $48 million, which will obviously be inadequate to compensate everyone fully to the extent of their harm. So the judge decided he needed to appoint a, a mediator. And, you know, he just assumed that this mediator would, you know, play the role of a Moses and come in and kind of resolve all of this, you know, and be a prophet of a kind. It didn't work out that way. In fact, it was so bad that just days after the mediator started talking with the two sides, he told the judge he thought the divide was too deep. They would never be able to compromise. Some of the owners said the money from the building insurance and the sale of the land was just for them. On the other side, a group of hardline relatives said the owners should get nothing or even be held personally liable for the 98 deaths because they failed to keep the building safe. When disasters struck, Champlain Towers South was facing a $15 million repair bill to comply with its 40-year recertification process. The condo association was going to assess the owners thousands of dollars each to pay for it. They had no choice. But not all of them were on board, as came out in that March hearing. Some unit owners were going door by door telling the other owners not to pay for special assessments, which could have been a big contributing factor to this building collapse. They deserve nothing. The law is clear. The law states they may be liable, and there is no way around the law. Still, a third group thought it was too soon to talk about a settlement at all. They wanted more time to figure out what had happened. The mediator told the judge that there was just no way forward. He just thought that it was kind of an intractable problem that he would never be able to solve. Even through the fall and Christmas and the holidays, they still hadn't resolved all of this. Judge Hansman had hoped to avoid dragged-out litigation. He wanted to get money to the homeowners quickly so they could try to move on. If they agreed to the settlement, he would protect them from liability for the deaths of their neighbors. But if they opted out, they were on their own. They might get nothing now and lose even more later. Hansman wanted to get to the death claims, which he thought would take even longer and be more difficult to sort out. But both sides dug in. We lost more than property. We lost the ability to fall asleep, to socialize, to focus, to work, 
to have peace of mind, and to be optimistic about our futures and our families. Deborah Soriano lived in Unit 1105. The night of the collapse, she had a party, and her friends had just left. Like many of her fellow owners, she felt like she was being punished for surviving. What this tragedy did to me was actually made me realize how detached I am from the material side of it. I don't need my watch, my jewelry, or my possessions. I I really just want my life back. I'm a small business owner who worked my whole life to give my kids an education and to be able to buy a piece of property where I could live for the rest of my life without having to stress about my future. Therefore, my peace of mind is gone. I'm officially homeless and I have no idea how I will ever purchase a home again. When did the victims turn into criminals? What was the turning point of this horrible tragedy? I was actually awake when it all happened, and thank God I was able to somehow escape from the 11th floor. It was a real miracle to be alive. What have we really done wrong? None of of us in that building would ever put our lives or their lives or their families in any type of danger. I will be 60 years old, and this matter has exhausted me. If we were younger and we had unlimited funds, I would fight until I couldn't fight anymore. But at this age, who wants to take the risk of being left with nothing? Where are we all going with this settlement? The wrongful death claimants deserve to get everything they can get. I don't believe any of our survivors disagree with that. But why should it be taken from us? What was our crime? What was our real crime? None of us can even begin to imagine what they're going through by losing family members or loved ones in this collapse. If we are living a horror story, their horror story has been magnified. But with all due respect to everyone, we need the help. Alfredo and Mariana Lopez lived in apartment 605 for 23 years. They called it their dream home. They escaped that night with their son, making their way through the dark, shattered building, hearing their friends and neighbors cry for help from the rubble. To be honest, I have no idea how we got out ourselves. We have been told more than a few times how fortunate we were to have survived. I know that for the first few months, I had survivor's guilt often thinking about all the people that were not able to get out that night. The guilt became unbearable, so much so that I have been seeing a trauma therapist in an attempt to get my life back. To no one's surprise, I was diagnosed with PTSD, and slowly I have been coping with ways to get out of my life as a husband and as a father. I'm not proud to admit that I haven't been very good at it lately. To hear the court address me as part of the economic loss makes it sound like I lost a couch or some other piece of furniture. I am a survivor. We are surviving victims. We all mourn those friends that died that night. Be sure of it, Your Honor. Now we are reaching an end to these hearings after mediation settlement that, quite frankly, I don't know any of the surviving victims who agreed to this. How surreal has this situation gotten to? that all of a sudden we have been considered as responsible or negligent with regards to this tragic collapse. 
To say that this is absurd doesn't quite describe how we feel. My name is Marion Smeraldi Lopez. That's my husband, Alfredo. I am the registrar at Ruth K. Broad Bay Harbor K-8 Center, the local public school. Four of the children who perished that night, Emma, Lucia, Stella, and Lorenzo, were all students at the school. I watched them grow, both at home and in school. Many of us at Bay Harbor School, teachers, administrators, and classmates share in grieving the loss of these innocents. As the only surviving child of parents who had lost two sons at a young age, I personally witnessed the heartbreak and devastation experienced by parents who have had to bury their children. I can only imagine the depth of their suffering and despair. Nothing, nothing could ever fill that loss. Having said that, I would like the court to understand that in addition to the grief and compassion that I feel for the loss of life, the experience of the collapse, the escape, and the stress of the ensuing legal proceedings in the following months are not without ever-present and long-lasting effects in my own life. I am still consulting with medical professionals for chronic sore throat, cough, and shortness of breath. This catastrophic event has left me feeling displaced, disconnected, and disoriented. My performance at work has suffered due to an inability to concentrate and focus. I never realized how heavily my mental stability and strength depended on my routines, familiar surroundings, and treasured mementos of my past. The Lopez family, what they've been through is a good example of what a lot of the survivors have been through in terms of the emotional trauma that they've suffered. Most of the people that I've talked to have insomnia. They have nightmares. They have flashbacks, including Alfredo, his wife, and his son. The rest of the building was demolished within 10 days, and so they had no chance to go back in there and recover anything. Linda Robertson grew up in Miami and has written for The Herald since 1983 just two years after Champlain Towers was built. She's been following the families and survivors since the beginning, and she calls the building a small town within a small town, one that vanished in an instant. I I really got to know some of the family members of those who died and also a number of the surviving owners through the stories that I was writing. I remember one of the engineers telling me, because he knew a couple of people who lived in the building, And he said, you know, Linda, everybody in Miami knows somebody in that building. It was such an institution. It had been there for 40 years. Multiple generations had lived there. A lot of older um, immigrants, especially Cuban immigrants. And then over time, it had changed more families living there, more Latin Americans from different countries. Kids had moved in with, with their parents. So this place was a reflection of, you know, Miami itself. And so by getting to know these people, I just felt it was very important to stick with them and follow 
what was going to happen in their lives. You had people who were displaced from their homes. They lost everything. Some of them got out of there with the clothes on their back. Some of them were barefoot. Some of them walked out their front door and literally looked down a cliff into this black void. They just haven't been able to to function normally since June 24th. It's really hard to concentrate. You may break out in, into tears in the middle of doing your job. It's clearly a case of PTSD for most people. There's people who are afraid to use stairways, are afraid to use elevators, are afraid to go out onto their terraces. Thunderstorms, noises, part of it is like trying to understand why me, why then, you know, how did this happen? Trying to reason with tragedy and, you know, you're never going to be able to, to do that. In the hearing on March 30th, the judge and the lawyers repeated something that everyone had said all along, that there was no deal that could possibly satisfy everyone. I just want to say everybody, all the lawyers in here and everybody recognizes the enormity of this situation. None of us will ever have to go through anything like the victims in this case. I don't in any way downplay the loss of one's home. I understand the devastation, but hopefully in time, you begin to heal. Having lost a child, a family member, you're gonna wake up every morning and you're gonna be, it's the first thing you're gonna think of for the rest of your life. When you go to bed, it's gonna be the last thing you think. Carlo Zeidenweber owned Unit 112, just down the hall from the Near family, who escaped out the front door. He and his wife didn't live in the unit, but he said most of his family had been living there throughout the pandemic. In fact, he told the court that the night of the collapse was the first time that the unit had been empty in four years. He's a doctor, and he lives nearby. And when he heard the news, he put on his scrubs and went to the scene. What I saw was unimaginable. I, I could have been in Iraq, I could have been in Afghanistan, I could have been in other countries that are at war, and that's how the place looked like. Because I was wearing my scrubs in the hopes of helping, they allowed me to go right to the place where the collapse happened. And the first thing that I thought was, thank God, nobody from my family was there. I was so grateful. I didn't think about the apartment. I didn't think about anything. The only thing I thought was, if one of my daughters would have been there, I don't care if I get a billion dollars, it means nothing. My wife would have been there, it would have meant nothing. I feel for the victims that died. I, I can only imagine why they must feel. And that's part of the reason why I'm here because it's not about the money. It's not about the money, but it's just the way about the case has been handled, and it's, it's been very, very hurtful. Dr. Zeidenweber wasn't disputing the settlement amount, but like many of the surviving owners, he was there to say how unhappy he was about how he felt they'd been treated by the judge and the relatives. And of course, in many ways, the case was about the money. It was about the lack of money. Linda Robertson. One of the big problems in this case, and one of the reasons that it's a limited funds case, in the judge's words, in other words, nobody's going to get what they feel they deserve, is that the original developer, builder, architect, contractors, they're all dead. So there's no one there to sue. The people who put this thing up 
and obviously there were many design flaws and construction shortcuts, they've passed away. And so that's a whole group of defendants that you can't, that you can't sue. There's just not going to be, there's not going to be a, a lot of money to be had. Before I hear from any other surviving unit owners, are there any family members uh, who have lost loved ones in this tragedy that would like to be heard and express their views on this allocation? Any family members who lost loved ones? Okay, I'd like to hear from them, please. Good afternoon, Honorable Judge Hansman. I believe this is the first time we speak face to face. Good afternoon, Lord. Thank you for coming in. Martin Langesfeld lost his sister, Nicole, She was a lawyer who, by all accounts, had a brilliant career still ahead of her. She had argued in front of Judge Hansman, and he made a point in court of saying how impressive she was. From the beginning, the Langesfeld family has taken the hardest line against the property settlement. Martin was one of the voices we heard in that press conference a few minutes ago, railing against selling the land and building on it. On behalf of Nicole Langesfeld, who horrifically passed away on the night of June 24th, We would like to respectfully address the court by stating that we are completely opposed to the settlement agreement for the following reasons. Loss of life is extremely more valuable and important than the loss of property. Therefore, life should be paid first without exception. We do not know how much money will be in the entire pot at the end of the case. We have absolutely no idea if there will be more than what the unit owners will get according to the settlement. We believe it is completely unfair to give the only guaranteed money to the unit owners who may be liable. Eileen Rosenberg lost her daughter, Malky. We heard a bit of Eileen at the beginning of the episode. Here's more of what she told the court. None of us wish to be here today. 98 innocent, beautiful souls perished, including my 26-year-old daughter. It is beyond terrible for those of us that lost loved ones and thought and horrible for those who lo- whose loss is so economic. I lost my precious daughter, my Malki, my life, my confidant, my security. In the Champlain building collapse, my pain is unbearable. I am constantly suffering. My heart is shattered into a million pieces and beyond repair. My day always started and ended with my mouth and so much communication in between. So many times a day, I took the opportunity to tell her how much I love her, how proud I am of her, how grateful and thankful I am for her. My Malki is sunshine, and the sun has set on my life. There's a word for orphan and widow, but there is no word for losing the child. I'll never be able to share another holiday with my daughter. I will never be able to hug her and kiss her and hold her tightly. I feel terrible that unit owners may not be paid in full for their units. However, we are faced with a limited pot of money to be divided between the two groups. I believe it is fairer to compensate the families that lost a loved one 
with the limited pot of money rather than those who have suffered purely economic loss. Although I am not a lawyer, I believe the law supports my position. I would like to thank you, Your Honor, for your leadership, compassion, and sensitivity during these most difficult times. Thank you, Eileen. Thank you. Very much appreciate you coming in. Anybody else before we conclude and the court announces its rulings that would like to be heard? After more than three hours of testimony, Judge Hansman was ready to discuss his decision. It was the end of March, the anniversary of the disaster less than three months away. And Judge Hansman himself was emotional. His eyes had filled with tears earlier. But as he'd been throughout the entire legal process, he remained very direct, clearly determined to close the first phase of a legal process that still has very far to go. I, the court has a lot to say. Um, we're going to touch on a number of topics. But what's been obvious from the very beginning of this case is that this case is about a whole lot more than money. You know, this was a, really an unthinkable tragedy that resulted in a massive loss of life. 98 people perished in a place that most consider to be their safe haven, their home, in the middle of the night, sleeping, enjoying the, their home, um, not expecting any harm to come their way. And in an instant, a building collapses. Stories are heartbreaking. They've been from the very beginning of this case. Uh, the court, frankly, has never seen a case like this. It's, uh, it's just brutal on so many levels. Now, I've said many times that there's no amount of money that can compensate the loved ones of those who lost their lives. And you have a 40-year-old building with developers who are no longer with us and contractors who are no longer here. It was obvious that if this would be a limited fund case, and there would never be enough money to fully compensate for the tragic loss of life and property. Now, what people need to appreciate is that the court could have chosen to kick this can down the road and take the conventional path of least resistance and just let the case play out for a few years. But at the very beginning of this case, people came in and they talked to me. And I remember one lady who had a five-year-old son who told me she was living in a hotel. And I heard from a lot of victims that were displaced and on the street, didn't know if they'd be able to buy a new home. We're not sure when they'd be able to relocate. Basically, their whole lives had been turned upside down. And I knew that many survivors were living hand to mouth in temporary accommodations and that receiving some compensation for their units was going to be critical to them being able to carry on with their lives. So at the very beginning, I expressed a preference to resolve this issue so these homeowners and survivors could get some compensation and move on and try to rebuild their lives. I thought it was a long shot, quite frankly. You have hundreds of victims with very strong beliefs 
about how these funds should be allocated. And, you know, there's an old expression, where you stand often depends upon where you sit. I've heard a lot of emotion here today. It's been a very difficult day for all of us. Everybody here welled up, including the court. It's, a very, it's very difficult to hear, these, to hear these tragic stories. And my heart breaks for these people who lost loved ones. I can't even imagine having a son or daughter or someone I love in this building, and then one day getting a phone call and finding out that their life was snuffed out overnight because a building that they were in collapsed. I, I just can't imagine the level of pain uh, that these people have and are going to have to carry with them. And, you know, I've heard from the condo owners who feel very strongly that they're not at fault, that they did nothing wrong, that they're being penalized. But the reality is uh, a court has to adjudicate issues not based upon feelings, not based upon viewpoints, not based upon emotion. I have to, I have to decide cases based upon the law. I've said before in this case many times in many different contexts that one of the things the court does not want to do here is let the perfect be the enemy of the good. The standard for a settlement like this is not whether it's perfect. Settlement can never be perfect. The test for a settlement is not whether it's perfect or the only possible outcome of a case. The test for a settlement is whether it is fair, reasonable, and adequate. That is the standard. And the court has carefully looked at this settlement and considered the views expressed today. And in making that determination, the court has to consider what the case would look like without a settlement because it's binary, folks. I either approve the settlement or I don't approve the settlement. That's what it came down to, yes or no. Judge Hansman, the lawyers, and the mediator had come up with a figure of $83 million to be divided among the surviving unit owners or their heirs. $50 million came from insurance, another $33 million from the upcoming auction of the land, which was expected to raise anywhere from $120 to $150 million. Bottom line, each owner was going to get about $610,000 on average, depending on the size of their unit. Many said their appraisals had been much higher. But Hansman was reserving the rest of the money from the future sale and any money coming in from other lawsuits for the wrongful death cases and for possible claims of psychological trauma by survivors. But again, if any of the 136 owners chose to opt out, they'd be on their own to fight for whatever they thought they deserved, but possibly getting nothing and possibly getting sued for millions. Hansman had said earlier that it was completely unrealistic to set aside all of the land for a memorial. And he vented his frustration with some of the families who had been talking to the media for months. This court is not going to face a situation where things go south and people keep making, uh, I'll call them uninformed comments in the newspaper and buyers are scared away and nobody buys this valuable asset. I am not gonna be in a position where at the end of the day, the property owners walk away with $83 million and the 98 wrongful death victims walk away with 40 or 50. That is not happening on this court's watch. I heard the other people who suffered through this, who got those middle of the night phone calls, woke up and opened their door and saw their building collapsing. I can't imagine the trauma and the horror, and I appreciate it. And when I use the term economic class, I do not mean to suggest 
that that is all you have suffered. I don't mean that at all. And I don't think the lawyers mean that. This is just a term that we use because we have to characterize people in some way. So we've used economic and wrongful death trap. But please know that this court is not diminishing in any respect your pain and suffering and the trauma you have suffered. But at the end of the day, and I know many of you lost friends and many of you lost neighbors, but you know, there are people here, the Wagensfelds, you know, I knew their daughter. She did a remarkable job in front of me in a case. And she was an amazing young lawyer, brilliant, talented, had her whole life ahead of her. Yes, some of you lost friends and neighbors. Yes, some of you lost mementos. Yes, some of you lost your property. But we have 98 people who lost their lives. So what does this settlement really do at the end of the day? What it really does is it takes the economic people who would have a substantial chance of having their equity completely wiped out, and it gives them certainty. It gives them $83 million, which maybe is not the appraised value. Maybe it's not 100% of the value, but it's pretty close. And in my opinion, it's a fairly remarkable result given the litigation risk they face here and the prospect of walking away from this case empty-handed. I think it's an outstanding result for the economic people. They get to be paid soon and get to carry on with their lives. Yes, maybe they can't buy a condo on Miami Beach or Surfside comparable to where they live, but they'll get something that they can use to buy someplace and try to move on from this tragic event. And they'll get it now, not three years from now, not five years from now, not after appeals are exhausted and all is said and done. And this case has to be kept in perspective. And for the property owners to walk away with 82 million and change quickly and get to move on is in this court's view, a remarkable result. And I hope the condo owners are appreciative as they should be. Anything else for the good of the order today, folks? And after some additional housekeeping, the hearing was adjourned. This first chapter closed. But there will be many, many more in the long legal story of Surfside. The legal saga is not over, and it's going to maybe, I hate to say it, but I think because now we're looking at the value of life and how to allocate more of those limited funds to people who died, it could possibly get even uglier. Coming up next, outrage over how Florida's lax condo laws may have contributed to the collapse. If you give people enough rope to hang themselves with, they're going to do it. All they did was keep kicking the extra expenses down the road. I'm sorry, it gets me aggravated thinking about it. Will the disaster force Florida to finally change the way it regulates development? Is the fact that a building fell down enough to stop the money machine? It's the machine that created Florida. Is the legislature going to stick their neck out and do anything to put a monkey wrench in the machine? I don't think so. So what will it take to ensure something like Surfside doesn't happen again? Let the developers build, 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 build. That's all the state ever cared about. Not one legislator had the guts to stand up and say, we better start thinking about making people put away money for a rainy day. They put money concerns over safety and life concerns. No two ways about it. All that and more coming up on Collapse, Disaster in Surfside. Collapse, Disaster in Surfside is produced by Treefort Media 
the Miami Herald, and the McClatchy Company. Visit miamiherald.com forward slash surfside dash podcast, that's all lowercase, to learn more about our investigation and to read articles mentioned in today's episode. And if you can, please rate the episode as well, as it'll help others find our podcast. Our hearts and our admiration go out to our guests who have so bravely shared their stories so that we may bring to light the many stories of all the people impacted by this tragedy. We also want to thank the experts who have joined us for sharing their insights. Special thanks to the team at WLRN in Miami, as well as CBS4 News in Miami, for sharing supplementary materials to help us tell this story. Collapse, Disaster, and Surfside was executive produced by Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort Media, Monica Richardson and Rick Hirsch for the Miami Herald. I'm your host, Paul Bieben. The series was written and produced by Eric Salat and me, Paul Bieben, for Treefort Media. Editing by Maxwell Carney and Abigail Sullivan. Mixed by Maxwell Carney. Treefort Head of Audio is Tom Monahan. Line produced by Oscar Guideau. English translations by Anne Liu and Lindsay Whistler. With additional production assistance by Jared Brom, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motel, and Lindsay Whistler. For the Miami Herald, Monica Richardson serves as executive editor. Managing editor is Rick Hirsch. Senior Vice President of News, Kristen Roberts. Senior Vice President of Advertising, Tony Berg. McClatchy Managing Editor, Cynthia DuBose. Audience Development Editor, Adrian Rui. Miami Investigative Editor, Casey Frank. Miami Herald Senior Editor, Dave Wilson. Miami Herald Information Services, Monica Leal. Copyright 2021 by Treefort Media and the Miami Herald. Sound recording copyright 2021 by Treefort Media.